20 years on, the series where we look back at Hong Kong's highs and lows since July the 1st, 1997. I'm Anna Fenton, and after featuring headline expat crimes last week, this time we look at crime and how cybercrime is now evolving faster than law enforcement can keep up. First, I caught up with criminal lawyer and solicitor advocate Jonathan Midgley. He picked two criminal cases which stood out for him over the past two decades and examined how Hong Kong's current money laundering laws make this a dangerous jurisdiction in which to operate a business. Well, I suppose the two that captured the most interest generally uh, was Nina Wang, uh, which ran and ran, and uh, eventually she, uh, the case against her was dropped by the Department of Justice. Can you just explain what happened with that one? Uh, how long have you got? It's <laughs> It's a very long uh, case, uh, but the background to it, of course, was that she was accused of um, falsifying her late husband's will. That was Teddy Wang. Um, a Teddy who, unfortunately, kidnapped. was kidnapped not once but twice and then yes, never that, found. That's right. Uh, it's uh, suspected, I think, that he was thrown overboard just outside uh, Hong Kong territorial waters. Uh, and then seven years after his death, uh, a will was produced. Um, one life, one love, I think is the way around the page read at the beginning. And uh, the, the case was investigated uh, and uh, she was eventually charged, that's Nina was charged, with um, forging the will. And then, uh, because of what happened in the Court of Final Appeal, the case was dropped against her. So she inherited... Vast millions. An awful lot of money. Um, And then, very sadly, actually, after all that stress and strain, perhaps it contributed to it, I don't know, she didn't live very long, and she died of uh, cancer uh, a few years later. And that brought me on, actually, to the second case, which got an awful lot of publicity. It was known as the Feng Shui Master case. And this was... her feng shui master, Tony was, Chan. Well, yes, it was her feng shui master, and more pertinently to the case, we say, was uh, uh, she was also a long-time friend and certainly a lover for a period of time. I don't think there was much doubt about that. Anyway, he uh, he was left the balance of the money, having been given an awful lot during her lifetime. And in the civil case, uh, which we were involved in, uh, the judge declared that, in fact, uh, he forged the will rather than inheriting a genuine will. And at the moment, we're, we, we don't act for him now, but he's in prison after a criminal case in which I uh, did not uh, participate as a lawyer. So poor old Tony got nothing, and the money's all hung up in legal um, muddles now, isn't it? I believe it? it's all hung up in legal muddles, as you put it, yes. So it's been very unsatisfactory from start to finish. Now, we've had some colourful cases over the years. We've talked about Kissel already yep. and, uh, and, of course, Rurik Jutting. Now, in, in your experience, what other cases over the last 20 years have, uh, have caught your interest in particular, particularly the ones you've done? <laughs> well, they all catch my interest uh, because each person that's in trouble uh, is 100% in trouble. So however small their case is, uh, they require full attention. 
But in terms of cases that uh, hit the news, there have been, there've been a number, really, uh, not only since 1997, but before that as well. And uh, in a sense, um, the variety of criminal cases that uh, seem to pass, at least my way and no doubt others, uh, to defend is the beauty of it, because uh, they range from driving offences to drug, drug charges... Uh, rapes, murders, the lot. Hong Kong gets it all, doesn't it? Hong Kong gets it all. It's a very. It's not to say that the crime figures are very uh, great here. In fact, it's a fairly law-abiding city by world standards. But we do seem to get a vast variety of cases, and some of them are, uh, from on the facts, very interesting. I mean, a lot of them nowadays involve uh, uh, commercial crime. And a lot of them uh, involve uh, money laundering, which is uh, something I could talk about for a long time. Well, tell us, a, tell us a bit about money laundering. Well, money laundering is a bit of a, an enigma in this, uh, uh, in this territory because, unlike the rest of the world, the prosecution can allege somebody's money laundering without proving the predicate offence, that's the underlying offence. So that, um, and I think that's wrong, by the way, and I've said so many times over. So what does that mean? I can accuse you of money laundering without any facts or grounds? Well, you can accuse me of money laundering if you can show that I have dealt with monies and that I can't, in shorthand, I can't properly uh, demonstrate what the monies uh, were from, what where they, what their origins. Right. Now, in other jurisdictions... Uh, the prosecution at least have to show that there was the underlying crime, the predicate mm. offence. And in Hong Kong, they don't. So that makes it popular for the prosecution, as you can imagine. In fact, I've just completed a case, which was interesting and long-running, in which, funnily enough, the person who was charged with the money laundering was also said to have been in charge of the underlying offence. So it begs the question, doesn't it, why was the person charged with money laundering? when, in my view, he should have been charged with the underlying offence. And the answer to that is it's easier for the prosecution to prove money laundering because of the circumstances I just mentioned than the underlying offence. And, in fact, in this particular case that I'm thinking of, the prosecution couldn't prove the underlying offence and they couldn't prove the money laundering and, and uh, there was a cost, orders, a cost order awarded in favour of the defendant. Hmm. So... Um, this didn't get much publicity, but from a lawyer's point of view, it's interesting because it underlines, I think, the shortcomings of the legislation in Hong Kong. Well, they do take it very seriously here, and it's extremely hard to open a bank account here. So so much for uh, it being the, the world's freest business city. I think most people would agree it's very hard to open a, a bank account. So how does the money laundering get going so much here? Well, uh, first of all, the, the problem with Hong Kong, of course, is uh, an overspill from the American issues and the factor uh, uh, legislation that the Americans really kicked into play. And now the rest of the world has followed. So the whole banking industry, as you say, has changed completely over the years. I mean, ordinarily in the past, banks would like your business and now they're very cagey about it. And, and the reason for that is you have to know your client. You have to know your client as a lawyer. You have to know your client as a banker. And so uh, a lot of banks would rather turn work away or clients away than take the risk of running into the very draconian legislation that now exists, which governs banking. But as far as money laundering is concerned, of course, a lot of it, it would be historical. People have had accounts and then they manage them or deal with them and, uh, uh, and the prosecution come along and say, well, hang on a minute, 
the proceeds come from an indictable offence. The proceeds in your account are the proceeds of crime, and the first step that uh, occurs is that they then close down the account, they freeze the account. Mm. And that's another bone of contention, I think, uh, because uh, unlike other jurisdictions, again, Hong Kong forgot, apparently, uh, to put in some sort of time limit. So in other words, the police can come, tell the bank that they think a particular account is uh, uh, subject to money laundering, that it's, it's a nefarious account. And the bank will then freeze the account just because the police say so. With no... Words, with no court order. <laughs> and, and I'm afraid quite regularly that occurs, and very large sums sometimes can be frozen for literally months, months and months, uh, on what I call executive freezing rather than judicial freezing. And I think that's another uh, gap in the law. So for people living in Hong Kong, it, it, they really need to be very careful about this. I think it's quite a dangerous jurisdiction to uh, operate a business in at the moment, actually, yeah. That was Jonathan Midgley. Next, I met up with crime reporter Neil Fraser, who has witnessed a dramatic change in crime over more than 20 years reporting for the South China Morning Post. Well, I think the, the biggest change that we've seen in Hong Kong as far as covering crime is concerned is the move from street crime to uh, online crime. Um, back, in the, back in the day, 20 years ago or so, uh, the biggest crimes in Hong Kong were um, robberies, uh, bank robberies, jewellery shop robberies. Uh, we, had a, we had a particular case uh, when a gang who'd robbed a jeweller shop in Central, the heart of Hong Kong, um, uh, were chased by police. A gunfight uh, ensued uh, and two passers-by, one an expatriate who was shot in the leg, uh, in a plus central plaza uh, um, was one of the victims and another was a, a Chinese woman who was shot through the head as the police and the robbers um, exchanged fire uh, those were not untypical types of crimes back 20 years ago um, things have changed quite considerably and um, I think the main reason has been the, um, the opening up of the internet and the realisation by criminals and by organised criminals that there was easy money to be made, not on the street where guns and police were about, but online where um, the law enforcement authorities maybe weren't quite as uh, up to their game as they should have been. So um, I think what you're saying is that the criminals are one step ahead of the cops these days. Well, I think, I think that would be fair to say, and I don't think the police would, 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 um, would deny that. I, I think the police are making very, very uh, good strides to, to tackling it. I think they've finally realised that, that uh, they have to up their game in terms of cybercrime, and, and that, was, um, that, was, that was borne out by the, the latest police commissioner in Hong Kong saying that cybercrime was his top, if not his top priority, one of his top four priorities. So yes, I think the police and the ICAC, uh, law enforcement in general, are um, beginning to get a grip, but they'll always be, by definition, one step behind the criminals, um, because the criminals are operating in an, in an international, in, in the international sphere now, um, and um, cooperating without bureaucracy, without uh, nation-state boundaries, without all the niceties and, uh, uh, and rules and regulations that go with that. So they'll always be a step ahead, and I think the police have got a difficult job on their hands. Yeah, that does seem to be the case. Now, if we go back a bit, what, what crimes among the ones you covered really stuck out for you as being particularly interesting? Well, I think the most interesting crime that I covered um, actually spanned uh, three, four killings uh, and one snatching off a auxiliary police officer's revolver. 
shortly after I arrived in Hong Kong in, uh, I think it was 1994 uh, or 93, a, an auxiliary police officer was shot in uh, Lei Muk Shui State and his revolver and his bullet clip were stolen. Uh, that crime was never solved. A few years later, a security guard at a bank, um, a, a Southeast Asian security guard, Iqbal Mohammed, I think his name was, he was shot dead outside a bank, uh, outside a bank during a bank robbery. And um, then, several years later, there was a bizarre shootout involving three police, of, three serving police officers in an, in an underpass in Chimsa Choi, in which uh, one officer was killed. Two, sorry, two officers were killed and one officer was very seriously injured uh, in a shootout in this underpass. Uh, what were they up to? Well, that's, that still is a question that's very much uh, hanging. Um, at the time, I wrote several stories uh, from, the, uh, from information I'd received from multiple sources uh, that these three police officers were involved in an illegal gambling, football gambling uh, syndicate and that they met in the underpass to discuss this. Um, the police have never confirmed that story. Uh, they've never denied it either. And, uh, however, uh, an inquest was held in which the dead police officer who allegedly uh, shot the two other police officers was found to be the killer, uh, which was a bizarre uh, scenario because an inquest is not supposed to uh, uh, um, find someone guilty of the actual crime, it's to establish a cause of death. Mm. So the whole, the whole case is shrouded in quite a lot of mystery. Um, it was quite bizarre that the revolver in that case, the police contend, uh, was used in both was the revolver that, that was used against the police officer it was stolen from in the first place it was the revolver that was used in the uh, the killing of the security guard at the bank and it was the same revolver that was used to kill one police officer and seriously injured another so the police solved five crimes and pinned it on one dead police officer um, which who's not talking who, who obviously couldn't defend himself so yeah interesting now over the years there have been some what I've seen particularly Hong Kong crimes involving hired hitmen. I'm thinking of the Look UT house and later Kevin Lau, the Ming Pao editor, being attacked by, by guys who were paid to do the crime. Is that a very Hong Kong thing? I think that in terms of hits where someone dies, uh, I think these are few and far between. I think the Look UT house was complicated in a lot of ways, but it was simple in, in, in one particular aspect. The gunman... Uh, who calmly sat and ate his yum cha, ate his breakfast. It was a Saturday morning, right in the heart of Hong Kong, one of its most famous tea houses. He then stood up, walked over, calmly pulled out a revolver, a PLA-issued revolver, and shot the uh, victim in the head, and then uh, walked out. Uh, I should add that before he took his gun out, he paid the bill, uh, and then walked over and shot the victim. So that was an, uh, an unusual case. Usually. In terms of the Kevin Lau case, it's not a case I was involved in personally, but it was typical that Kevin This was Lau, when the he was the editor of Ming Pao? He was one of the editors of Ming Pao, yes. Got attacked by two guys on a motorbike? That's right. Both of them were not Chinese, and this has become uh, usual practice within triad societies in Hong Kong. Uh, they will hire members of Hong Kong's ethnic minority groups, Southeast Asians normally, uh, who can be they can be got to do jobs cheap. They can be got to do jobs that other people don't want to do. Uh, they, can be got, they can be got cheap because they're desperate. They're, 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 they're part of Hong Kong's underclass. 
uh, and um, they're not formally involved in the in the gang, but they can, they'll do the job. Right. And that was the Kevin Lowe case was a case in point. Um, it also f- brings distance between the person who ordered the hit and the people who actually carry out the hit. So how much does it cost to get somebody bumped off? Well, it depends who the person is. Uh, I wouldn't like to put a figure on it, but I've, I've heard figures, anything from from 20,000 to 200,000. That, that's, that's figures I've heard, but you know, it depends on the circumstances of the case. Useful to know. <laughs> okay, now you mentioned triads, and or triad societies, as I think they're more correctly called. Has the traditional idea of triads gone away, or is it still with us? I think it's still. I think it's still with us. Um, even the police will, will will confirm that there are certain triad groups in Hong Kong. There are the four main groups: the Sunny Yon, the 14K, the Wo Group. Uh, they, they're the, they're the ones who control most of the rackets uh, at a street level. Uh, as far as the traditional ceremonies are concerned, and uh, the use of joss uh, uh, sticks and incense and chickens and so forth, uh, I'm not sure how much of that goes on anymore, but certainly the structures still exist. Um, however, like any organised crime uh, operation, the bottom line is money. Mm. And uh, I think the, the organisations are quite fluid in who they will make alliances with, whether that be locally or internationally, as long as money is being made, then the, the, rule, rules, the rules are fluid. Mm, so. I know it's a huge subject, but <clears throat> drugs springs to mind as an area where they're uh, joining forces with, with dealers on the ground. So how, how does the drug distribution network work, basically? Well, uh, on a, I think on an international level, it's most interesting in that... Uh, You've seen uh, with the opening up of China uh, and the, the massive uh, amount of drugs that are coming out of China, both uh, from the production of methamphetamine because Guangdong province is the, the biggest area in the world where ephedrine, the ephedrine plant blows, grows openly and we all know that China is a massive production centre for synthetic drugs mm. uh, which are being sent over to evade the laws in, uh, in foreign countries as well. And, uh, you just tweak the composition of the drug that's being made uh, and it's thereby not illegal uh, and the laws then have to catch up. It's another area where the criminals are ahead mm-hmm. very much mm-hmm. of law enforcement and, and the law uh, internationally. So I think the international drug trade is massive and uh, the, the traditional uh, drug laws from South America, for instance, uh, have obviously turned their, their eye towards China. Uh, and uh, it's, it's been reported and it's on the public record that uh, one of the biggest and uh, most, most notorious uh, drug cartels in, in, in Colombia, the Sinaloa cartel, have uh, done a deal with uh, organised crime groups in southern China and in Hong Kong. Hong Kong may not be uh, where, where the, the drugs are made, but the deals are very much done in Hong Kong and a lot of the money is laundered through Hong Kong. So we could say it's a transshipment centre for drugs now? Well, the Hong Kong government denies that. The Hong Kong government had consistently said that that Hong Kong is not a transshipment point for uh, dangerous drugs, uh, and uh, they've been saying that for 25 years and even longer. However, I think one look at the news clippings files for the past 5, 10 years will show you that the amount of drugs going out of Hong Kong through Hong Kong is phenomenal. That was journalist Neil Fraser.
After years as a computer crime buster in the Hong Kong police force, Paul Jackson now applies his cyber cop skills in the private sector. He explained how cyber crime has rapidly advanced from individuals looking for opportunities to a more organized structure with hacking to order. It seems there's no end to criminal ingenuity. The mobile phone market really started things off and then of course the advent of the internet which in those days was still a dial-up technology but quickly Hong Kong was very advanced in this respect quickly moved on to broadband so we've always had one of the most advanced infrastructures in terms of the internet which of course is the driver behind computer crime cyber crime so uh, you know in in those days it was it was more about uh, simple hacking it was it was very uh, what we'd now call quite trivial crimes um, because people didn't know how to protect their computers and they uh, the advent of uh, technology and the, the internet meant people wanted to go online but had no idea about security issues. So hackers found it extremely easy to break into people's computers and you know just watch what they were doing, listen to what they were doing. And a lot of it was out of fun or spite or just to show that they were smarter than other people and uh, you know to just gain access to people's computers. So of course the, the main thing about this is all you need is time. Cybercrime doesn't cost money for the criminal, does it? it it's, a, it's a very easy to do um, crime if you've got the knowledge. And that's right. You know, as, as technology has advanced, of course, you know, to, to the level that it has today with the sophistication of the internet, the online world and, and smartphones, etc. Computer crime, cyber crime has advanced commensurately um, and there's no end to criminal ingenuity where technologists will look at an issue and hope to provide solutions that make life easier, more efficient or more fun for people. Criminals will look at that same technology and try and see how they can subvert it, how they can commit frauds or how they can uh, con people. So now you're you're working for Kroll now, which is a company that investigates all this kind of stuff all of the time. So how do you guys stay ahead of the game? So we obviously have to keep our ears to the ground. We have a very strong intelligence capabilities, we, we, and also we are dealing with lots of issues globally with our various clients. So we are fully aware of, of, of the, the, the crime scene, if you like, of, of trends in criminality, and how it's moved away really from, I would say, individuals looking for opportunities to a more organized structure. So organized crime has seized on the cyber world and realized that there's money to be made uh, out of this, and hence, Rather than criminals operating independently, organized crime is now using hackers as their workforce to do their work for them. So they are giving them directions as to what they want them to steal, what information they like them to steal, that they can then monetize. And they can probably monetize this in a, in a few different ways, but primarily they're looking for information that may drive stock market movements. So insider information on mergers and acquisitions, uh, those, those kind of information which they can um, readily profit on the markets by predicting market movements and be distanced from the crime. I see. So that's the big picture stuff. We read a lot about West African syndicates targeting, you know, uh, every, everyday people with romance scams and CEO scams and Nigerian prince scams. What, what, what are all these about and how are they organised? Yeah, th- th- this is obviously never going to go away as long as they're making money. And we see countless uh, frauds that just evolve and change over time. So I'm sure all the listeners have heard of the Nigerian prince-type frauds, this which was, is scams with the inheritance. In, yeah, started in 92, 93 with faxes, didn't it, saying That's that right. uh, this chap had inherited a lot of money or a government contract had overrun and the money had to be buried somewhere. That's right, it had to be siphoned out somehow. And uh, would you be obliging enough to let us use your bank account? 
And of course, uh, you know, there is an infinite number of potential victims who think that this is a great way to make quick money. Uh, you know, of course, it always ends up that they have to pay an advance fee in order to cover the legalities, or they allow their account to be used, which therefore ends up with it being emptied. So um, the fraudsters will inevitably make money out of them. But they are becoming more, more clever because these scams are now well known uh, and they've become more um, uh, inventive in their approaches. So as you rightly mentioned, romance scams, scams have recently uh, um, hit the news because uh, they prey on the weaknesses of uh, vulnerable individuals. And that's you know, a pretty heartless thing to do, but it's a very successful thing to do because if you can build up a relationship with somebody and spend months grooming them, then of course that trust factor builds up and the, uh, the scam then becomes much easier to, uh, to, to operate. Yes, and that's very real in Hong Kong. I think in the first two months of the year, there were two dozen romance scams, and they were just the ones detected and reported by the police. So the scale of it is probably much bigger with people who are too embarrassed to say that they are the victim of this kind of thing. Yes, uh, uh, nobody wants to report that they've been fooled and look foolish, uh, they're a victim of a scam. So you can really regard these reported numbers as being the tip of the iceberg. We see a lot more, especially the CEO-type frauds. And what's that one? So the CEO-type frauds affect small businesses primarily, especially those with uh, you know individuals of high wealth. So uh, the scammers will typically break into the email accounts of the uh, CEO or somebody very high up within the organization, somebody with authority to... Uh, to instigate a financial transaction and then they will wait they will watch to see how they normally uh, execute instructions they will look at all the emails and they will copy their kind of style of writing and they will wait for an opportune moment because they will see when that individual is on a plane or un otherwise uncontactable and then they will send an instruction to the finance person with a uh, uh, requesting a transaction and they will say, look, I'm unavailable, I'm about to get on a flight, but I need this to be done urgently. That's the kind of typical MO they use. And the finance person, because it seems to come from the, uh, uh, the CEO, and it seems to be authentic, and it seems to have the right language, written the same style as the CEO would, they generally will transfer those, those funds, and it's not until later that it's discovered. There are multiple variations on this, but that's kind of the, uh, the, the way it's done. Okay. So how do people like yourselves and indeed the police keep up with this or is it a losing battle? Oh, I wouldn't say it's a losing battle, but it's all about education because common to all of these scams that we just mentioned is social engineering. So in many ways, the criminals have become experts in psychology. So they understand how people think, how people act, and they take time to study that and they take time to make sure that they will have the maximum impact when they commit their frauds. So a lot of the hacking, for example, nowadays that we see of, of major organizations is really through an employee is really through an individual and it's the hackers who have tricked them into executing a file, a malicious file, um, by clicking on a link or an attachment uh, and, and therefore opening up a, an entry point into the network. That was cybercrime expert Paul Jackson. I'm Anna Fenton. Join me again next week when we look at the built landscape from architectural developments over the last 20 years to our crazy property market.